Welcome to episode 298 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. You know what's great to talk about? Actually, let me rephrase that. You know who is great to talk about? Jesus. Jesus! Yeah. Actually, this is going to be a crowd-pleasing episode, I think, because we're just hitting all of the demographics, all of the market base, because we're going to be talking on this episode about the two natures of Jesus. And that really is a crowd-pleaser for both orthodoxy and heresy alike. So really, (laughs) we're getting everybody today, and it's going to be fantastic. So if you're not geared up for that, get ready, everybody. It's coming for you. But of course, first... Let's do a little affirming. I think just affirming today, we decided that we're going to keep it all positive because why not? So what are you affirming with? Uh, I'm affirming a little app that you can get for uh, iPhone. It's called Lifecycle. And I I went through a phase where I was doing like a ton of quantified self uh, kinds of apps. Are you familiar with quantified self stuff? I well, I kind of am, but you might want to explain that for everybody. So the quantified self is it was really, really popular, I don't know, five, six years ago. And basically the idea behind quantified self is you track everything and then you're able to start to show like correlations. So like the most common thing would be like um you track the amount of sleep you're getting and you also track your caffeine intake and you should pretty quickly see a correlation between, or it'd be an inverse correlation in theory between the amount of caffeine you drink and the amount of sleep you get. Um, and then you can add things like your moods. But one of the things that, um, that came out of that was something called life logging and a lot of it was location based. And this is a similar concept and it, it uses the GPS on your phone and it tracks your location. But instead of just giving you like a log of the places you've been, which I have an app that does that too, and I think it's kind of cool to look at um, look at that stuff, it breaks it up into locations, but more fundamentally into activities. And it does it all pretty intuitively. I've ha- I haven't had to update um, many things. Uh, it kind of can tell based on where you are, what you're probably doing. Um, and after over time, it just sort of shows you like how you use your time, how much of your time is spent traveling to work. Like there's a specific, it identifies where you work. I think probably based on where you are, you know, Monday through Friday from eight to five, it, it assumes that that's your workplace. And then it assumes your home based on where you're overnight. And it'll show you how much time uh, it has a category for commute to work and commute home from work. So little things like that, that, um, you know, are interesting, but also can reveal some, I think some interesting things, um, ways for us to kind of like redeem the time. Um, when you real start to realize how much time you use on a certain thing, if it's a, if it's kind of a waste type time thing, that reorients you to be like, all right, I need to figure out a better thing to do with this time. Or maybe it might be something like, oh, I'm in the car on my way to work for an hour and a half every day. Maybe I should queue up some lectures from RTS or I should subscribe to a new podcast and work my way through that or something like that. So it's called Lifecycle. Uh, it's relatively straightforward to use. Um, and it it's not an immediate gratification. Uh, it, it won't give you any information for at least like three or four days. It requires you to let it run and capture data for three or four days before it presents any information to you because it wants to actually have a little bit of a baseline to understand what it's presenting to you, which I, I think is a good uh, a good sign that they're I'm sure there are lots of people that install it and uninstall it right away, and they seem to think it's worth the wait for the people who who kind of persevere through that buffer period um, to get the information. So check it out. It's 
I don't know. It's not for everybody, but I think it's a cool app. I think it gives me some useful information. Here's my favorite behavioral correlation between 2000 and 2009 per capita consumption of cheese and the number of people who died by becoming tangled in their bed sheets was over 0.9. So that was correlated. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, the most famous one that I've ever heard, this is like the classic, um, the classic, uh, philosophy class example to prove that correlation and causation are not the same thing is, uh, that, you know, we, we see, the correlation, uh, ice cream sales increase in the summer. And we assume it means that it's because it's hot out, but, uh, you can also add that tiger attacks also increase in the summer. And so you can say an increase in ice cream and an increase in tiger attacks are correlated. So therefore ice cream causes tiger attacks. Same with murder. I've seen that same statistic with murder. Ice cream. Obviously we're being tongue in cheek. Yeah. Loved ones. (laughs) Know your statistics. Yes. And basically that just means no, that statistics probably are not telling you what whoever is presenting you with the statistics wants, uh, is actually telling you. It's telling you what they want you to know, what they want them to tell you in most cases. Or, or I would say more often than not, what happens is the person who's wielding the statistics doesn't actually know the thing that they're communicating. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes not nefarious. Sometimes not nefarious. That's true. It's not always intentional, but you can almost always take a set of data and find the message you want to present in that data and then sculpt your graphs and your other information accordingly. So that's why statistics are sometimes dangerous. Surveys can be like that too. When you take a survey, the person who wrote the survey, uh, if they're not careful, is going to guide you to the answers they want to just by the way they write the questions. So, But one thing that Lifecycle does is it's totally neutral. It's just data. So... It is just data, but the question would be, are any of those correlations spurious? And the answer is, oh yeah. Yeah. So you have to sort all that out. Apparently yourself. So once you download that app, just go out real quick and get a degree in inferential and descriptive statistics and you should be all set. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Lifecycle doesn't do any analysis. It's just telling you, I mean, it's just making some basic correlations between where you are at what times and drawing some, some conclusions. So anyway... It's a cool app. Check it out. If you don't like it, uninstall it. If you like it, keep it. Whatever, whatever you want. So, <laughs> Jesse, what are you affirming today? Glowing endorsement. I'm doubling down on a previous affirmation. I had previously affirmed a podcast, and now I'm actually doubling down and going deeper. I'm affirming just a single episode of that podcast. So, everybody should go out to the Gospel for Living. Four words: the Gospel for Living. And take a look at the most recent episode entitled The Bible and My Life. It is perhaps one of the best sermons I have ever heard on a somewhat obscure passage in the Old Testament. And I'll leave it at that. So everybody go out and take a listen to that. You will not be disappointed. Nice. I'll have to check that out. I have listened to that uh, podcast a little bit. I do this thing where I subscribe to way too many podcasts. And so that means I, I actually listen to very few of the podcasts I'm subscribed to. I was going through my podcast list the other day and I realized that there are podcasts that I've been subscribed to probably for over a year that I've not listened to a single episode of just because it never comes up in my little algorithm I use to determine what to listen to. It never is high enough on that, on that algorithm to actually come up on the list. So, but it happens. Yeah, it does. It is. The struggle is real. So let's get into then the topic for this whole episode, which is these two natures of Christ. In some ways, we've already displayed our presupposition. We're talking about two natures, not three, not six, not 24. 
So lead us into this whole topic. What is this about and why does this fit into the general arc of the conversations we've been having about Jesus? Yeah. So as we've said a couple times now in these episodes, um, the the doctrine of Christology uh, has two components. It talks about the the person of Christ or the, the metaphysics of the incarnation is how I usually refer to it. And then there's the work of Christ. So right now we're in that first part of the doctrine. Within that, there are four compass points that kind of bound what Orthodox Christology is. So there's the fact that Jesus is, uh, the second person of the Trinity is, always was, and always will be God. Uh, And then there's the second point, which is that the second person of the Trinity took on a human nature, and from that point forward, uh, was, is, and always will be uh, human and then fully human and truly human, truly God, right? So there's that element on both. And then the second, uh, the third compass point is that those uh, two natures remain two distinct full natures. So they don't they don't confuse with each other. They don't separate from each other in a sense that makes them, uh, makes them two persons. They are fully united to each other in uh, the hypostasis, in the hypostatic union, but they do not unite directly to each other. And we'll talk about some of that stuff here in a minute. And then next uh, next time we do a Christology episode, we'll talk about what that means in terms of Christ actually being one person, which is the, the final compass point on that four-point compass. Um, or you can maybe think of it as like four walls to, to a, a room or a boundary or something like that. And so people don't think we're just making up these definitions, that we're the first one to conceive of these distinctions. Where would you say people can go to to find a historical enumeration of all this stuff? Yeah, I mean, there's several different places you can go, um, right? This is a Reformed podcast, so we're always going to point people to the Westminster Confession or the London Baptist Confession. In both cases, you can find uh, a pretty clear, articulate um I think thorough uh, answer for this, a thorough explanation of this in chapter eight of each uh, confession. The confessions are virtually identical. There's a few little wording issues or changes here and there that that are not not really substantive. I'm not sure all the historical reasons why the wording was changed. I'm sure there were reasons, but um, some of it may have just been situational, different kind of almost like dialect issues. Um, but the more historic uh, answer for that, the one that goes back even further, and that both the Westminster, the London Baptist, and then of course the Continental um, Three Forms of Unity are dependent on is the Chalcedonian definition. And so we already talked, uh, uh, well, not we, Jesse and I, but but when I was on with the Distilling Theology guys, we talked pretty much at length about the, the Chalcedonian definition. And so the Chalcedonian definition was a basically an amendment or an attachment to the Nicene Creed, which further clarified the doctrine of Christ. So in the, the Nicene Creed, uh, the Creed of Nicaea in 325, there was a relatively short statement on the metaphysics of the Incarnation, and that solved the issue in the immediate context, but the controversy, the Arian controversy, continued to kind of grow and fester for the next 50 years. And so then in 381, they released the, uh, or they they promulgated the uh, Constantinopolitan uh, Creed, which we usually call the Nicene Creed, and then uh, that settled the debate more or less about the fact that the second person of the Trinity and the third person of the Trinity were in fact fully God. Uh, But then in the fifth century, uh, in 431, there was a council at Ephesus, uh, and then there was a council in Chalcedon in 451. And so at Chalcedon, they kind of added this amendment that expanded the statement out of the Nicene Creed. And that's really how we should understand this. That's part of the reason why we uh, we don't necessarily call it the Chalcedonian Creed. 
It takes a different shape. But what this document really is self-consciously doing is it's basically like a call out, uh, a call out box of the Nicene Creed to further explain the section in the middle about the metaphysics of the incarnation. So it's almost like there's a little asterisk and it takes you to like the glossary in the back. And this is like a further, this is like an appendix to the Nicene Creed to give you a further, fuller definition of what the church believes about the, the nature of the incarnation and how the, the nature's both are united to each other in the hypostasis of the sun, but are not confused or mingled or blended together. So I'm sure that we'll get into the creed itself. But th- those are really the the main historical documents. And it bears saying that the Chalcedonian definition is a boundary marker of Orthodox Christianity. Someone who explicitly rejects the theology of the Chalcedonian definition is rejecting the theology of the Christian church. Because the theology of the Chalcedonian definition is the appropriate, proper explanation of the doctrines in Scripture as it relates to the Incarnation. So to reject the Chalcedonian definition is to reject Scripture, not because the Chalcedonian definition has any sort of intrinsic authority, but because it is a faithful explanation of what the Scriptures teach on the matter. Right on. So you've said already a couple of times some Greek words in there, and it may be helpful to define those for people. Again, starting at the beginning, even if some of this is rehearsing what we've already talked about before. So let's go into that hypostasis. You've mentioned that a couple of times. You said hypostatic union. Yeah. How do you define that stuff? Now we're talking about Greek. So let everybody have it. So hypostasis um, is a Greek term. It's difficult to define. Uh, A lot of the terms that we use in the theology of the Trinity and the theology of the Incarnation are difficult to define. So let's back up even a little bit further than that. So the kind of fundamental reality of of things is called a nature or an essence. In Greek, it's an ousia uh, or a a fousse, which is more or less it's Essence is usia and fuse is nature, but they, they're used interchangeably by this time in the, the historical um, development of the language. And what the substance is or the essence or the nature, the substance is the fundamental isness of a thing. It's, it's what determines what a thing is. It's the difference between a human person or a human and a, um, an orangutan, right? There's a different essence. Now, defining what it is that's different, that is his, his just notoriously difficult, right? What's the difference between a chair and a table? Well, y- you could try to parse out what the metaphysical differences are. Uh, in some senses, a, a chair is a four leg, a, usually a four-legged object that has a flat surface that you sit on. Well, a table is a four-legged object that you could sit on, but we still can usually tell the difference between a chair and a table. And the, the essence of a thing is uh, what what we are able to sort of identify as what is different, what, what causes something to be what it is. Now, once you have the idea of essence in place, now you have to account for each individual instance of something that is that essence. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about a hypothesis or a hypostasis. Uh, In English, we usually would say something like person. You might get away with something like entity or object. Um, It's a concrete, real, actual, existing thing of a particular kind. Now, when we're talking about the Trinity, it's a little bit different, so I'd encourage people to go back and and listen to that, because when we talk about the Trinity, we're talking about three hypostases or hypostases that share a numerically singular um, usia or substance. 
when we're talking about the incarnation, we're actually flipping that around completely. We have one hypostasis that is a hypostasis of two distinct natures. And as we said already, that we have to remember that the the hypostasis of the sun was and is eternally and immutably a divine hypothesis. So sometimes people say like Jesus was a human person or Jesus became a human person. And I understand what they're trying to say, what they're getting at with that, but it's not actually proper to say that Christ was a human person. It's more proper to say Christ was a person who was human. And and we can talk about, we'll probably talk about that more when we talk about the, the element of Christ being one person. But so we've got those boundary markers in place, right? We've got the substance, which is the fundamental reality of what a thing is. And then we have the hypothesis, which is the actual thing itself. So the, 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 this can of beer on my table, there's a can. It's an individual can that exists in reality. It's right in front of me. I can see it. I can identify it. I can demarcate it from other things. But there's something about it that makes it a can versus a bottle or versus a cup or versus a monkey, right? There's something fundamental to its existence that I'm able to identify that makes it what it is. That's the substance. The actual can sitting on my table is is a hypothesis. And so in Christ, what we have is we have this eternal divine nature uh, subsisting or existing as a concrete hypothesis, which is the sun. So also the Father and the Spirit, but we're talking about the Son here. So we have this eternal divine nature subsisting or existing or being hypostatic as the second person of the Trinity or in the second person of the Trinity. And then in the incarnation, we now take a second, full, distinct, true, genuine, um, you know, vero de vero nature, and we add it to that already existing hypothesis. And what's really important, and this will will explain, this will be more important next time, but what's really important is that the, the second nature of the incarnation becomes hypostatic in the already existing hypostasis, not as a second or an additional hypostasis. So we have a hypostasis and the second nature becomes hypostatic in union with that already existing hypostasis. Um, and that accounts for a lot of things. That accounts for a lot of the theology we run into where we're able to preserve the distinct properties of each nature, which is a key element of Christian theology, is that the natures do not blend into each other or or influence each other. I'm sorry, Chad Bird and Eric Sorensen, the human nature does not become divinized in any sense, and the divine nature does not become humanized in any sense. So we have to we have to land that and understand that and really get it, which is a hard thing for us to do, but we have to really get it because if we lose that distinction, if we lose that um that sort of boundary marker that the natures do not merge or meld or get confused, we start to veer off into some non-Christian kinds of thinking about the incarnation. So it's possible that people listening to this might hear some of those terms for the first time. It'll be familiar to others in different ways. But I think what generally happens is people hear terms like personality or maybe even more fancy unipersonality of Christ. So how do those things fit into like all the technical details that you just expounded on? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really important point is when we're talking about the persons of the Trinity or the one person of the Son, we have to make sure that we're not thinking about those terms in light of sort of postmodern, post-enlightenment concepts of personhood or personality, right? So when we talk about a hypostasis, a hypostasis is literally just an existing essence, right? Hypo means under. 
stasis is like stay, standing or or um it, it, you know it's it's a state so it's like a state underneath it's like a it's a concrete state uh, when we think of substance right that's the same or not substance subsistence in latin right we're not talking about something with you know, a mind necessarily a rationality. Some early church thinkers did talk about a, a hypostasis as a substance uh, or a soul of a rational nature. I don't think that's the best way to go about it. Um, Boethius is kind of famous for defining a, a hypostasis or a, a person as a, a substance of a rational nature. But it's more appropriate to think of them more as an individual concrete entity right? A rock is a hypostasis. A horse is a hypostasis. Uh, The beer can on my table or the chair I'm sitting on are each hypostases. So is God is a hypostasis. Um, Well, God is three hypostases. Or Jesse is a hypostasis and I'm a hypostasis. Individual countable things. Think about countable things. That's really key because especially in modern times, um, and this is one of the major elements in the EFS controversy and some of the other theology proper problems that are going on in re- mostly Reformed Baptist circles. Sorry, Reformed Baptists, but this one's on you mostly. Is w- people start to think about these terms in reference to what a what we think of when we say a person. We think of a person, we think of certain things, we think of personhood, we think about identity, individuality, we think about communication, communicability, we think about social uh, social back and forth, interaction, that kind of stuff. And that's where we end up with things like the social trinity movement, which there's a lot of uh, problems with it. And there's a lot of people who probably wouldn't even consider themselves social trinitarians who I think uh, Matthew Barrett makes a pretty good compelling argument actually are and don't realize it because social Trinitarianism has just become the water that we swim in. And so when you don't, you know, the fish doesn't know that he's wet. Well, James White doesn't know he's a social Trinitarian because compared to a lot of social, like real hardcore social Trinitarians, he's really close to not a social Trinitarian, but compared to Nicene Orthodoxy or what I think the Bible teaches, he's not in that camp. He's in the social Trinitarian camp. And a lot of that comes from a misunderstanding of the necessity of personhood or personality uh, in terms of what we're saying when we say person. So I usually try to stick with more close to the Greek terms. I try to say hypostasis or subsistence um, or something like that because I think it takes some of that baggage away uh, and, and allows us to talk about it without as importing as much of the terms into it. Um, but that's a really important point is that we have to think about these terms in the way that the theology of the fourth and fifth century was thinking about these terms. Now we we can build on that. We can modify it to an extent. We can come up with whole new ways to talk about um, what the Trinity is and how the natures interact and what the incarnation is, as long as we're not contradicting or somehow circumventing those things. Um, there is, I think, there's a compelling case. It was in a recent uh, recent uh, issue of the Credo magazine. There's a compelling case that the metaphysics of Platonic realism, which uh, they call it Christian Platonism, I'm not super sure. I'm from I'm I'm comfortable with that terminology, but the metaphysics of of Christian Platonism, um, that that's actually a, an underlying assumption in the Nicene Creed, such that if you get rid of that substance metaphysic, um, that that Plato really pioneered and then was developed by people like Origen and then and I think um, retrieved and kind of repaired by people like Athanasius. 
if you if you get rid of that, so this is where like William Lane Craig goes down the wrong trail. You get rid of the idea that nature's are actual existent things. Um, you actually can't affirm Nicene theology the way that the Nicene fathers did because they had those things as an assumption. And I would argue those things are in the water; they're they're in the air of the New Testament too. When Peter talks about becoming partakers of the divine nature, for example. Um, or when Paul says that we are by nature children of wrath, those words had meanings to them. They had that concepts existed. And I think it's pretty clear that those concepts do come from some Greek philosophical schools. So we have to think about these terms in the ways that they were used and understood by the people who kind of uh, invented the Christian way to use these terms. They developed this theology and developed this terminology. We have to think about them in the terms that they were thinking about them. Once we've got that and we've landed it and we've sort of mastered it, now if we feel the need to modify or to refine or to build upon or to articulate in a completely different way that is not inconsistent with, then we can do that. But we have to start from a place of really understanding what those terms meant in their original context before we can move on to those sort of second order exercises, if you want to call it that. And like we said at the open, this is one of those things where it draws a lot of attention, both heat and light from those that are orthodox and those that have heretical opinions. So it might be helpful to elaborate a little bit on what you said about James White yeah. and what even social Trinitarianism means and why it's connected to the topic. And you kind of brought it up tangentially, but of course, like how getting it wrong results in this fish in the water experience yeah. where you don't even realize that you've got it wrong. Because people might be afraid, like, what if that's exactly the view that I've been espousing or the one that I hold? Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I think the the cautious or careful listener is going to understand. And here we're talking a lot about the Trinity in an episode that's called Christology. And it's because right. you can't, because these, the metaphysics of the incarnation and the metaphysics of the Trinity are so interdependent on each other. A lot of times it's easiest to explain a problem in one area by showing you how it, how it works out in another area. And so in this instance, um, the modern concepts of personhood and how persons, human persons, human personalities interact with each other, the sort of inter, dis, inter um, interrelational communication. Um, it, it conceptualizes persons or personhood in terms of societies, right? So Jesse and I and, and the rest of our family, we form a society and there are shared conventions in that society. There's shared language. When we interact with each other, there's a, a space between us and that interaction happens kind of in this conceptual space between us, right? We're face to face. And you could think of like the words that we're using to go back and forth as almost like this substance that passes between us. And that's how we communicate with each other. And so social Trinitarianism conceptualizes the persons of the Trinity in largely, if not, if not exactly the same way. And so they would understand um, when we talk about the father loving the son, they would conceptualize this as one, one person loving another person who is extrinsic or external to himself. Right. So they think the son to, to say that the son is, is loved in a way where he is internal to the father a lot of social Trinitarians, and James White has said this in, in more or less words, are uncomfortable with this idea because how could there be love between the Father and the Son if the Son is internal to the Father? Isn't that a form of modalism, right? He had this famous debate with, uh, I think it was a, a Unitarian named Roger Perkins. And um, in that debate, Perkins was trying to press him into a position which basically admitted tritheism. He was trying to say that your theology of the Trinity results in tritheism, 
and uh, and he was using this phrase the try three minded God or something like that. James White's response was that uh, that this understanding of the Trinity that he was proposing these three eyes or three centers of consciousness in the Trinity is required for a meaningful concept of love between the persons. And that's because there has to be, the father has to be not only conscious of the son, he has to be conscious of himself. And that consciousness of himself cannot be the same consciousness that the son has of his own self-consciousness. And so he's reasoning out to this idea that there are three centers of self-consciousness in the Trinity. So each person has their own self-consciousness by which they are conscious of themselves. Now I just said the word self and consciousness way too many times. Well, the problem with that is that this is fundamentally rooted in post-enlightenment, post-modern concepts of personhood, which require this concept of self-consciousness that wasn't really even a thing or an understanding in the time period that this was developed. And so classically speaking, and I'm, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with this language, but it is the way the church has classically spoken of it, is that the love the father has for the son simply is the divine nature. It simply is what the Father is, which is the divine nature. And there's nothing in the Father that is not the love for the Son. And the same is said of the Son to the Father. And so this is why the church has classically said, well, if the love between the Father and the Son is actually the divine nature, then that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the hypostatic reality of the love between the Father and the Son. Now, there's a lot of reasons to be cautious of that language and to understand it is an, it's a total punt to mystery and an analogy, but the the love between the father and the son is not seen as this internal movement of the mind or internal movement of the will towards another in affection, which is kind of how class, like how postmodern we understand love. It's this internal movement towards another in a positive sense. Instead, the love the father has for the son is because the son is an internal person to him. This is John Calvin. Calvin has this beautiful passage. I don't have the reference off the top of my head, but he takes the the language of John uh, 17, I think, the, the high priestly prayer, maybe John 20, that the father is in the son and the son is in the father. And then, the, then it extends to the church being in the son and the son in the church. Analogously, he takes that and he says, well, that's because the son is an internal person to the father. And so the father's love for the son simply is what the father is. It is the divine nature. That's a totally different understanding of what the love between Jesse and I as brothers are, or the love between my wife and I as spouses are, or between parents and children or parents and, and friends. All That's a very different thing. And the main reason for that is, let's pretend you have the father, the father, uh, the son, and the Holy Spirit. And now let's pretend somehow you can take away the love of the father from the son, or you can consider the father apart from the love that the father has for the son. Well, that's an incomprehensible, inconceivable situation. Well, in James White's uh, version of that, right, in James White's version of theology, even though he would say that there's never a situation that we could conceive of because the father is perfectly loving and perfectly good where he withdraws his love from the son, although I'm not sure what he does with uh, the cry of dereliction on the cross and the forsakenness of the cross, but I don't think he goes that direction. Um, we could still conceptualize the father without the love he has for the son because we somehow could conceptualize the father apart from the son entirely because the son is an external person to the father. Well, in classic Orthodox Trinitarianism, you can't do that. You can't conceptualize the love that the father has from the son. You can't conceptualize the father apart from the son at all. And even if you could, 
you can't conceptualize the father without the love he has for a son because the love he has for a son is fundamental to his nature. Um, so I just think, I know that's a lot of really complicated theology, but this is complicated stuff and it's very easy to go down the wrong path if you're not crisp and understanding what these terms mean and how they apply and what they're used for and what they're not used for, I think is even more important. I think that's super helpful. And I think it might be then good to like transition back to kind of the Chalcedonian definition right? and relate that then to the fact that some people I think will look at that and maybe even will split hairs of what you said and said it seems like unnecessary theological wrangling. But in the Chalcedonian definition, as you kind of already intimated and maybe you've talked about before, there's this emphasis of without confusion, without change, right. without division, without separation. So like maybe we should talk about why those things are important, how they even relate to what you just said. Yeah. So so there, there are kind of two, um, two boundary markers in the Chalcedonian definition. And they relate to those two comp- those two last compass points that I talked about. So the the we'll talk about the second or the first part later next week because it's about one person. But there's there's language that talks about the self same son, right? There's there's the son who was at the same time eternally begotten of the Father, and the self same son who is temporally begotten of the Virgin Mary, right? And so that language is emphasizing that although we think about the Son in reference to his eternal begottenness of the Father, and we think about the Son in reference to his temporal begottenness of the the Virgin Mary, we're still thinking about the same Son. It's not a different person. It's not a different Son. It's the same Son thought about in two different ways. There's that. And then in the middle, there's a statement about the way that the natures are united to each other. And so it says, uh, it goes through this first part, and then it says, acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably, right? That's kind of, they classically are called the four negations. So unconfusedly simply means that the uh, the natures do not meld together, right? We can still understand what is the divine nature and what is the human nature. And there's there's no mixture or confusion in there. We don't ever look at an attribute and go, is that the divine a divine attribute or is it a human attribute? There's, they remain eternally and permanently distinct. There's unchangeably. So um, that means a lot of things, but most particularly, it means that the uh, the union is is perfect and complete and is never going to be undone. Um, whether that's a metaphysical necessity or whether that's a covenantal necessity, I think is uh, up for debate. And I think there's room for disagreement in why it is that the union will never be divided, will never be separated from each other or never be modified. But the fact that it will never be modified, that is not up for debate because it, there's a whole host of metaphysical and um, covenantal implications if Christ did uh, separate the unions. If somehow the son ceased to be human again, there's a lot of implications for that. Um, and then that also, when it says unchangedly, it also means that the natures did not change. So the divine nature remains divine. The human nature, uh, which started as human, remains human. Although it, it is a changed nature, it's not an immutable nature, and it changes throughout the course of his life. And then there's indivisibly. Again, some of these have a lot of overlap, but indivisibly simply means that the natures are united in a way where we cannot separate them into distinct actors, right? We're not talking about, you know, sometimes, and some of this is um, maybe nitpicky about language, but we have good reason in this area to be nitpicky. 
sometimes when trying to explain why it is that um, the sun was not aware of the last days when that was going to happen or the sun was um, hungry. We say, well, the, it was the human nature that didn't know, or it was the human nature that was hungry, or the human nature that died. Well, what we're being, what we're doing, if we're not careful, um, and I, I know a lot of people think that what we think uh, drives what we say, and that's certainly true. But if we, if we say the wrong thing long enough, it's also going to change the way we think about it. And so, what, what we should be saying is that the son, as the self-same person, he didn't know according to this nature or he's omnipresent according to that nature, whatever it might be. Because if we treat the one one or the other nature as though it is a distinct actor separate from the other, then we actually have personalized it. We've made it a hypostasis. And that's where we, we're going to talk more about the implications of that next week. But the natures, even though they are not united to each other, they're united in the single person of Christ in a way that they can never be divided. You can't um, you can't conceptualize the human nature of Christ as somehow existing apart from the divine nature of Christ. It, it can never be that way. Even in death, even in the grave, the Heidelberg Catechism, I don't remember the article, but the Heidelberg Catechism says this really specifically. Even in death, the divine nature remained united to the human nature. Um, and then the last is um, in, inseparably. And again, that, that's covering a lot of the same ground. The, the natures, once united, will never not be united. They never will. They will never be separated. And when we have those four negations in place and we really understand them, they serve as a good rubric to look at any theological position on the incarnation and understand if it is within orthodox boundaries. So when James White, I, I don't know why this is, maybe it's just because he's been putting himself in this position because of the things he's been saying lately. But when James White says on his podcast that uh, the son doesn't know the day or the hour and only some people, and he says it in kind of this dismissive, like, well, yeah, some people say it this, some people think it's this way, kind of implying like, well, they're not really right or they don't really know. Some people say that it's just in the human nature that he doesn't know. Well, well, what you're doing there is you're actually separating the natures, right? But what he's doing is you're confusing the natures because now he's saying, well, it's not, this it's not just the human, it's not just the son according to his humanity. It's the total Christ. It's the whole Christ who doesn't know. So he's actually made it so rather than having two distinct thinking faculties or knowledge faculties, one human and one divine, the son only has one thinking faculty. He's basically blended the natures into some hybrid nature where now the son is a single person, but in some sense only has a single nature, some sort of hybrid nature, because this hybrid nature now does not know, right? This hybrid nature as it's hypothesized, is now a new kind of nature that has the ability not to know, right? That that ends up being a form of eutychianism. It ends up being a form where the, the human nature sort of consumes the divine nature in a certain sense, which is the reverse of eutychianism. But when we look at any given theolog a theological position on the incarnation, and we talk about this theological spider sense all the time, when you read something and you just kind of go, oh, that just doesn't seem right, right? We talked about that heresy noise, that the noise the dogs used to make. Like you're not sure what's wrong about it, but you know something's not quite right. These four negations and then also uh, combined with that, that single person self-same language, they serve as a really useful tool, a heuristic tool to identify, is this within the boundaries, right? Does it separate the, the natures, either into two distinct persons 
um, you know, something like, um, I can't think of anybody off the top of my head who does this explicitly, but some uh, Narcy Sproul kind of did this in some of his statements towards the end of his life. He he wasn't an historian when you when you pushed him to clarify, he always clarified in in the direction of orthodoxy. But some of the things he would say about the fact that it was the human nature that that died on the cross, the human nature uh, completed the atonement. Right? You can't say God died because it was only the human Christ that died. Um, those kinds of statements they violate that self-same person clause. They also violate that, that inseparability clause, right? Or when you're looking at something like James White, or when you're looking at William Lane Craig, who says there's no such thing as a nature. And so what you have is you have the son has a set of divine attributes that he always had as God, and he adds another set of attributes to himself. And what the result is, is this new set of, this new broader set of attributes. Some are what some are shared with humans and some are shared with God. Well, what you've done is you've created this new confused, melded nature. That's just this new set of attributes because that's all that a, a nature is for William Lane Craig is a set of attributes. While one set of attributes combined with another set of attributes yields a bigger set of attributes, but one set of attributes. So I think it's important to really spend time understanding this. Um, we'll, I'll recommend some books here after I take a breather, but it, there are some really good books that approach this in ways that are useful and that are, are easy to approach that I think would be helpful. Uh, but this is something that you cannot afford to get wrong and you cannot overemphasize how important it is to get this right. And this is anticipating a bit the conversation next week, but you know, based on all of that, which, you know, is both technical and practical, one of the things that perennially comes up when we're speaking about Jesus and then how we understand Jesus and then literally how we view Jesus is some in the Reformed tradition who hold different convictions about the second commandment. Yes. So like tie that all together then with this idea of what the second commandment gives us as a prescriptive behavior. Yeah. And this is a conversation that even even in our Reformed Brotherhood group where people who are in there presumably have listened to most of the, the show, um, even in that group, this still comes up on a regular basis where people aren't sure about the logic of it. They're not, they're not understand why the argument is the way it is. The, the logic of the, um, the violation of the second commandment, specifically as it refers to images of Christ is I think relatively straightforward on one level. It's, it's simple enough, right? Images of God are prohibited. Jesus is fully, truly God. So images of Jesus are prohibited, right? It's that straightforward. Well, the next step that most people who are trying to argue in favor of images take is to say, well, it's not a picture of, of the divine nature. It's a picture of the human nature. And the response that I always give to that is, okay, well, that's fine, but that's that's Nestorianism, Patrick, right? That's a Nestorian argument. And the reason that it is, is because the miracle of the incarnation is not God, is not a man becoming God. It's not a, it's not a subject, a human subject somehow being divinized. It's not a human subject somehow being united to a divine subject. It's a divine subject. That's what we're talking about at the beginning of the episode. It's a divine person who somehow is found to be human, right? Philippians 2. It, it's, it's that he was found in the form of human. He's found in the shape of a human, right? And that's because he took on the form of a servant. He didn't uh, it wasn't these two abstract natures that were combined to create this new thing. It was a, a fundamentally divine person who now has added to himself a human nature and all of that comes with it. Yes, that includes a visible visage, right? It includes a face and a body and all of those things. But when we portray the sun in visual form 
or when we just think about the sun in, in a mental image, um, which all of the arguments about whether that's possible, whether all of that stuff aside, I, I get those arguments. It's a totally different conversation. When we do that, what we're doing is one of two things. We are either um, we're either trying to think about the sun entirely apart from his divine nature, right? Because we we sort of instinctively understand. Well, I can't. I know I can't portray a picture of the divine nature. One, it's not possible because it's invisible, and two. Um, because it would be blasphemy to do so. It's a it's a strict violation of the second commandment. So then, okay, well then are you just portraying the human nature as though the human nature was hypostatic and could be portrayed as though the, the human nature was a distinct existing thing apart from the divine nature? Well, whether you realize it or not, you've just created a second hypothesis. You've got two distinct things somehow united together such that you can portray one of those distinct things without the other. The alternative is that you maintain an orthodox Christology, in which case to portray the human nature of Christ is to portray the divine person in which that human nature is hypostatic. So this all does come back to this doctrine of the hypostatic union, right? The, the second commandment is fundamentally about worship. Right. And so so who is being portrayed and what is being portrayed in an image is fundamentally going to be the question. Is it God? Well, if it's God, you're violating the prohibition of worshiping in any sort of way that's not prescribed. God never gave us an image. He never gave us an authorized picture to use in religious art that is going to going to be used for worship. Right. And that that is exactly the logic that he that is used when Moses explains the second commandment to the Israelites in Deuteronomy. God never gave you an image. Therefore, you don't worship according to image because he didn't give you one that was authorized. The alternative is that you you somehow feel you do have an authorized image. Or you're going to use that image not for worship. But now what you're doing is you're saying, well, that's Jesus, but I'm not going to worship him. Well, that's a problem too. That's a violation of the third commandment. So the, the fundamental identity of who and what this is, this second person of the Trinity, what it is, who it is we have in front of me, in front of us, and what that person is, that is what we're talking about, the hypostatic union. And unless we preserve the two natures as two separate natures, we're not talking about Orthodox Christology. We're not talking about the second person of the Trinity the way the Bible describes him. Right on. That was great. <laughs> but I think that's important for people to hear because sometimes I think there is this sense that there's a prudish or puritanical understanding of that second commandment or that there isn't any harm in doing this. And what I'm trying to communicate and trying to emphasize by way of what you just answered was that there is like a direct connection, a direct lineage to pure, substantiated, and biblical theology. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, we don't have time to go into it um, today. We can maybe talk a little bit about it, but... This is just the logic that the Bible presents about how it is that God um, God becomes man, how it is that the second person of the Trinity steps into our existence and becomes one of us. And you can see that um, pretty explicitly in a couple spots. I don't have the passage references in front of me, but there's a passage in Acts um, where, where Paul is preaching, uh, and he talks about how um, God, God purchased the church with his blood, right? I think he's I think he's talking to the Ephesian elders. I could be wrong about that. Well, well, God doesn't have blood, right? So, so we have to have some understanding of what it means for the second person of the Trinity to purchase the church with his blood. And the way that that has to be explained in a metaphysical 
perspective. Either you just sort of punt to mystery and go, we can't understand what the Bible is saying, which it totally flies in the face of any sort of reasonable doctrine of perspicuity or doctrine of scripture. The, the words that Paul was saying were meaningful and intelligible to the people who heard them, and they're meaningful and intelligible to the people who are reading them. And so I don't, I don't, I don't care what James White says. It doesn't require Chalcedonian theology from 300, 400 years later, because the theology is embedded and built into what Paul is saying. Peter says something very similar where he talks about how the, the Jewish rulers crucified the author of life. Well, a man is not the author of life, right? God is the author of life. So we have to have an accounting for what, what, how do we understand this person who can both be somehow murdered and also the author of life. And the, the theology of the New Testament follows right in line with the logic that is then picked up. And I think expanded, I think it's fair to say expanded or developed or um, clarified. I don't know what kind of language we want to use, but it's the logic in its rudimentary form is present in the preaching of the apostles, the explicit preaching of the apostles. We're not talking about theological reflection even in the epistles from you know 50 years later. We're talking about the preaching of the apostles of Peter on the day of Pentecost, right? Right after Jesus ascends. We're talking about in 34, 33, 34 AD, the logic of the incarnation is already present in Peter's preaching. Now we do have some theological reflection in some of the later letters that explains us a little bit more, Philippians 2 especially, that had meaning. And so we, so that logic is developed and clarified and further explained. That's the task of the church, right? That's the task of preaching is to take the raw material of scripture and to explain it and expound it and apply it and to clarify it and to, to, to illuminate it. And the Holy Spirit does that. But that doesn't mean that the logic of, you know, Peter's sermon or Paul's sermon or, you know, Philippians 2, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, all the logic that's there that shows this, that doesn't mean that logic is not there in sort of rudimentary form. It's not even obscured. It's not even hidden. It's there right on the face of it. It may be a more primitive articulation of it, but it's right there on the page. It's it's strictly a biblical theological uh, doctrine. That's right on. Yeah, we're at the risk of going into the next topic, which we're going to cover we in are. the next episode. So I guess, is there like any, I mean, obviously definitive episode on <laughs> two natures. So like, is there anything else that you want to add to uh, the discussion we've had so far? Yeah. I mean, I think pointing you at some good resources. Um, obviously we, we love the confessions. I think that uh, Westminster and, and London Baptist uh, eight on this is exceptional. I think it's some of the best, clearest theological statements that the church has ever formulated. In some ways, I think it's even clearer and more articulate than the Chalcedonian definition itself, although it doesn't hold the same ecumenical authority that the Chalcedonian definition does. Um, it, it, I think it's it's clearer because it's building on that foundation. Um, any good commentary on the Westminster Standards, J.B. Fesco has one, Chad Dixhorn has one, um, a good commentary on that chapter will do wonders for you in understanding this theology. Um, I can't recommend On the Incarnation by Athanasius enough. We're actually starting a uh, reading group in the Reformed Brotherhood Telegram uh, group. You can go to t.me slash Reformed Brotherhood if you'd like to join our Telegram group. Uh, and you can just ask in that group and someone can get you information about joining the subgroup or the separate group for the reading uh, for the book club we're doing. We're just getting started. This episode's going to come out on the... Uh, it's going to be after the first week is done. So the first... The first reading is the week of July 3rd through the 9th. They're short readings. If you are a little behind, you can catch up real fast. Um, that would be a good way to do it too, because again, the logic of the Chalcedonian definition is radically clear in the work of Athanasius, even though he lived 
120 years. He was writing this 120 years before the Chalcedonian definition. He follows that same exact logic. Um, and then, of course, I think Calvin is really clear on this in the Institutes. I don't have the chapters off the top of my head, but he's very clear. And then I think any decent Reformed systematic theology, Bavink, Voss, um, Horton, and you know, the more modern ones, Beaky, um, any decent systematic theology on this that's from a reform perspective is going to do a good job. I will caution the reader uh, or the listener against some of the Princeton theologians on this because I think that sometimes they do tend to be a little overly rationalistic, rationalistic on some of these metaphysical questions, and that can lead that can lead things down the wrong path a little bit. But someone like Bovink or Voss um, or Burkhoff, um, Beaky and Horton are both exceptional on this in terms of modern theology. Um, yeah, and I think um, there's a book also by Donald Fairbairn. Um, I forget the name of it. It's co-authored with um, Michael Reeves. I think it might be called The History of Christianity or something like that. Um, if you look up uh, Michael Reeves and Donald Fairbairn, um, you're going to find this. And his he's a patristic scholar. I think he's probably evangelicalism's uh, finest patristic scholar. And I don't have any shame in saying that. Um, the chapters on this are totally invaluable. Um, he does a phenomenal job of explaining the creedal theology. Um, he's where I learned most of this stuff from, and I can't recommend that book enough. So don't just take our word for this, though, right? Investigate the sources, investigate the theology, ask a lot of questions, um, and and more more than anything else, read read the Bible, read these Christological passages carefully and slowly and repeatedly. And I think if you just read them with a little bit of background knowledge about how these terms function and how how the church understood the scriptures to be functioning, I think that they become pretty clear in terms of what the logic of the scriptures are on this. Um, and plot twist, it's not the same logic that you see in people like William Lane Craig or or James White or Owen Strahan. It's a totally different fundamental logic that's explaining these passages. And you kind of have to ask, well, is the straightforward logic of the Bible on this and, and the confessions and the creeds and the historic testimony of the church, is that the right way to go? Or is it this more modern concept of personhood and, and, and mutability and things that are being imported into it? I think the answer is pretty clear. And of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't also recommend, once again, a really great book, especially if you're coming from a, a layman's perspective, but want to enter into some more technical details in a way that's approachable. Mark Jones' book, Knowing Christ, yeah. is fantastic and a great resource. So that is worth picking up in addition to all of the other great academic and pedagogical resources that you recommended. Yep, Absolutely. Well, one last little bit of business. Um, we, we haven't done some of these announcements towards the front because we just haven't done it. But we are uh, sponsored right now by Logos Bible Software. And a lot of these books that I've recommended, uh, you can pick up. You can get a copy of On the Incarnation in Logos Bible Software for, I think, $14, which is a good deal. It's cheaper than you could get uh, a paper copy. It's indexed. It's uh, linked to the scriptures. Everything is right there. Um, you can also still pick up that fundamentals package uh, for $50, which I think has a, a fair number of systematic theologies. I think it has Hodge included, um, it has that included into it. Um, and then you can also get some pretty uh, inexpensive add-ins like the NPNF series and things like that that can be added to your to your library pretty quick. So you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash logos and you'll get information there about how to purchase a, a base package. Um, you can also just download Logos for free and add um, resources into it kind of ad hoc. They have a free um, a free book of the month that comes out every month. Sometimes it's a book. Sometimes it's like a class or a lecture series. Usually it's a book. Um, and then they always have promotions and sales on 
books that you can add for cheap. Um, and they always have really good free resources available too. So check it out. We would love it if you would pick it up. It's a, it's a resource that I just cannot speak highly enough about. Um, it really is a gift to the church. And I think sometimes people think, we talked about this early on, sometimes people think that all of these helps and tools and stuff, that it's kind of like the cheater way to do it. No, this is this is allowing the historic and contemporary church to help protect you from wandering into some of these heretical positions. So take advantage of that, and you can pick it up again, reformbrotherhood.com slash logos to, to take a look at the different base packages. And if you use that link, you can get, I, I believe it's a 15% discount and a handful of free books along with your purchase. You won't be disappointed, right? I mean, you can't no. be disappointed. No, no, you, you won't. It's it's. If anything, you'll be disappointed with how much time you you now spend just looking at the cool resources in Lagos. That's probably true. And speaking of disappointment, I'm sure nobody's disappointed with this episode. So, until we're, we're going to get into more next time, and until we do, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. What if I'm part of-